Welcome to Emil Franzing's Voices of the West, dedicated to the principle that America was better off when our TV shows featured cowboys instead of lawyers. We always think so anyway. Hi, welcome to another edition of Emil Franzing's Voices of the West. I'm Harry Alexander, Bunker to France here. Yeah. And I don't know if Todd Roberts is, is with us. Uh, no, he's not with us yet. He's some doing something. Who knows what? Uh, but parking to, somewhere. Parking. <laughs> we're looking for gasoline. Yeah. We'll work for gas. Probably uh, trying to get home. Hitchhiking. <laughs> ran out of gas. In any event, uh, we've got a great show planned for you today. Yes, we're we're going to be talking food Ooh. of the Old West, and uh, I eat not not, old, not I like food. I not eat. not old food as such, but food. Well, most of my food's old because it sits in the ice well, for a long time. Yeah, you and me both, but <laughs> you know that's how that works. Sherry Monahan, Western Writers of America author, is uh, joining us today. Sherry, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's always a pleasure to have you. Uh, and uh, today, and the topic is so great. Our topic is most excellent: tombstone cooking. Now, this is Yay. this is from a, uh, one of your uh, books um, on. Uh, I've lost it here. Well, you want me to go? Yeah, would it? you please? I've, okay, I've lost well, the book. It's, 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 but the Tombstone Cookbook, packed with more than 120 recipes inspired by Tombstone's historic eateries and adapted to the modern home cook. Also, info on the region, its history, the lore, with sidebars and historic photos, its recipes and lore from the town too tough to die. At least it's not from Bisbee, otherwise that would be the town too dumb to die. <laughs> oh. uh, bad, bad memories in Bisbee. <laughs> hey, but just remember, just remember everything in Bisbee is downhill. Uh, well, that's very true. Or uphill. <laughs> <laughs> or uphill, depending on where you are. Yeah, it depends on how, how much you've had to drink. Well, uh, yeah, right. Okay, so let's talk about Tombstone Cookbook and uh, cooking back in the old olden days. Um, you, you, Hollywood gives us the, the well, we see chuck wagons on the range and so forth. Gunsmoke probably is the best one to tell Del us Monaco. about Delmonico's, yeah. which I think was a chain. I'm not sure, but no, I, no it was not. Nope. Okay. Nope. Uh, no, but there seemed to be a Delmonico. You're thinking of Denny's. No, that, that's much later. <laughs> the other day. <laughs> uh, now, there's always a Delmonico's in a Western someplace along the line. It but, sounds right. Yes. Yeah, I guess it just sounds right. It's like the Long Branch. You know, every town had a Long Branch. Yeah. So that I it, can tell you why. I wrote a story. I wrote an article in Truist yeah. Magazine about Delmonico's. Please, please oh, tell us yeah, all about that. Start. Okay. So Delmonico's, of course, is you know world-renowned New York City restaurant established early in the 1800s, and they were known uh, for their excellent cuisine. They were the first to have printed menus, first to have tablecloths. Um, you know, it was a whole new dining experience that Delmonico's sort of set the standard for what we even eat, uh, how we eat today in restaurants, and. Delmonico's was known for their attention to detail, taking good care of the customers, and excellent food. And so, you know, that perpetuated in in the Northeast and eventually the Midwest, and then, of course, it transferred to out west on the frontier. And so people knew the name Delmonico's. It was like this iconic 
place that people knew for high-quality, excellent food. So you see a lot of different Delmonico's restaurants on the frontier, including Tombstone. And so it was just a name that people associated with excellent service and delicious food. So, hey, if I'm going to open a restaurant in, in Tombstone, Arizona, or in Denver, Colorado, or in, you know, uh, uh, who knows, in Nebraska, um, Delmonico's. People go, oh, Delmonico's, that's that place in New York. I bet this place has good food. It's sort of mm. like branding, like we do today. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, and I, so, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, that that was it. I was going to oh. say, so you, it, it kind of looks like a chain, but it's not, none of them are related. There's only one original Delmonico's, and that's in New York. Well, they kind of established the crystal chandelier, the white tablecloths, and the crystal glasses, yep. right? And, and like I said, the printed menus, um, which nobody had ever done before. So, yeah, they set a lot of restaurant standards that we follow today. And then, of course, Fred Harvey later on did, did the rest. But And the rest, and the rest of the, excuse me, the menus were in French, right? Which nobody spoke. Uh, <laughs> uh, are you talking about Tombstone or Delonica's? Both. Both. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it was. And the thing is, is that I, that I like to tell people is that in the... 19th century, 1800s, which is when Tombstone was at its heyday, um, and during the 1800s, classic French cuisine was all the rage, no matter where yeah. you were. It was on the East Coast, in Indiana, or in Tombstone, Arizona. And so a lot of the menus, um, the Grand Hotel, actually, um, it was in 1880. Of course, Tombstone you know, started 1877, but really didn't start coming on as a town until 1879 when more businesses started opening up. So there were a lot of restaurants for almost a year that printed all their menus in French because it was trendy. Tombstone didn't want to be seen as this rough-and-tumble mining <laughs> town out in the middle of nowhere, Arizona. They were cosmopolitan. Wow, and so they printed in French, of course. Okay. And I often joke, it's like, what if you're some guy from, you know, Indiana or from Montana and you come to Tombstone for mining and you look at this menu and you go, okay, you know, vol de, you know, chien or pear or whatever it is. What's, it's them, like, what's them escargots? Right. I just, do they like look at another diner's plate and go, yeah, I'll have that. It looks good. I know. I can just see some Irish guy that's just learned English going over there and saying, I'm going to have that. And if the waiter will say, well, sir, that's uh, horses are tied at the rail. So, so what did it turn out? Okay, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to ask. So, what did the what did the average cowboy think about this, or did the average cowboy even bother to uh, go into any of these uh, fancy dancy restaurants? Oh no! I mean, there were you know in Tombstone there were restaurants that were simple, basic fare, uh, and everything in between, up to like fine dining that you would have found at the Grand Hotel dining room and the Cosmopolitan dining room, which then became the Maison Dorée. Uh, so you have very, very fancy restaurants, and then you have you know just you know some widow who ended up having to start a boarding house and kitchen, and she's serving you meat and potatoes. Um, but it wouldn't have been a, an unusual for a cowboy or a miner or a mining executive or the man who owned, you know, the gun store or the mercantile store to all be dining at the same place. Um, and it was just it was just what it was. You know, like we look at it in, and back in time today and go, wow, that's really wild. But it was just how they lived. <laughs> yeah. You know, like what are people going to say about us in 100 years from sure. now? And they go, what the hell were they thinking? How yeah, did they exactly. do that, you know? Cheese yeah, yeah. on corn it was, chips? It, <laughs> crazy. <laughs> Corn dog? What the hell's a corn dog? <laughs> On a stick? Do you eat the stick or is it a handle? 
I got a question for you. That's good. <laughs> all of our all of our listeners want to know this. Was Ike Clanton a lover of baked oyster pie? That for real? <laughs> I can't answer that, and, and I would prove anybody to show me how they know that's the truth. I will say that Ike Clanton owned one of the first restaurants yeah. in Tombstone called The Stars. I mean, so he was a restaurateur. That was, and that was the, uh, the original Tombstone before they kind of moved it over, isn't it? Wasn't it? Yes, that was the original site um, across the hill that you know ended up being you know not so practical until they found this plat where Tombstone is today. Yeah. All right, let's talk about the freshness. Uh, we know for a fact that oysters were a big uh, a, a big to do in Tombstone. Yep. They got there. Then they got them fresh. How? What? The logistics must have been a nightmare to do that. The San Pedro River. Well, it it is, and when you think about it, um, oysters. Of course, if anybody knows anything about oysters, they're fresh in season in a month that ends in the letter R. Right. Um, and so, anything that you're getting in the month of May um, is yeah, not right. fresh. They're canned. That's- yeah. So, you know, you have to consider when you're getting these oysters. Now, again, oysters were like the number one trendy food along with French cuisine in the 19th century when Tombstone was in its heyday. So people would bring in oysters. Uh, Oysters could come in from, um, they were all over the place. They would come in from the Pacific Northwest. But people really prided themselves on advertising in the Tombstone newspapers, you know, Booth's oyster or oyster oysters from Booth's in Baltimore, Maryland. So they imported them from the East Coast. Coast. And remember, this is before dry ice has been invented. Mm -hmm. So they are packed in insulated railroad cars that are insulated with big giant ice chunks and hay to keep them insulated as they're making their way out. Now, I've often wondered how the hell people didn't die of food poisoning from bad seafood because when you think about it, before Benson uh, really came to be a town, the railroad went from Tucson. And it was like a 12-hour, 13-hour stagecoach ride to Tombstone. How they kept them fresh is beyond me. And then once it gets closer to Benson, you know, you're talking a few hours in in a stagecoach. But again, if you're in the month of May, now, and they ate these oysters year-round. So Mm -hmm. I always find that really interesting that I don't read more about people getting (laughs) sick. Maybe they said healthier constitutions than we have today. What what do you think their preservation thing, like with the oysters that were out of season, they probably came in a jar Liquid, salt they were water. canned. They had they had oh. tons of canned goods, okay. so they would have been canned. But I mean, you know, today oysters are always refrigerated. Although if they were packed in salt uh, or a brine like an um, like olive oil or an oil, then you could put them in cans. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Well, tell, tell kind of like me. an anchovy we have today, oh, I love or anchovies. you know, yeah. Mm. <laughs> makes me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, bunker's gone now. Okay, well, don't drool on the mic. I just I just went into an anchovy flashback. I just, wow. Oh, well, tell us about uh, James Louie, who owned the uh, Hubert's Cafe. That was kind of an interesting uh, progression of events. Talk, tell, tell you who? James Louie. You had the Hubert's Cafe. Started out as a tent cafe, and then he ended up uh, building a real cafe, a restaurant, a hotel. I don't, I don't. What time period was that? I'm not familiar with that. It's from your book. It, okay, oh, I, I, maybe what, I'm not understanding your pronunciation. Yeah, that could be. Well, you know, it's it's from the uh, the earlier Tombstone cookbook. 
that you... Oh, Taste of Tombstone. Night, yeah, Taste of Tucson, then. Tombstone. Already helping Tombstone. our history. So the question is... Okay. So the question is... Well, the question is, we're going to move on to the next question. <laughs> <laughs> I, thought, yeah. I thought I was being so, so you know, setting up such as beautiful crabs... Uh, it it to, sounded to really some. good, and honestly, I am totally drawing a blank, but, you know, the thing that. is, is that some of the things that were in the original Taste of Tombstone book from 1998 um, are not in the Tombstone cookbook, yeah, that, um, a, a totally different version of that, um, and so that it could be that I found that that, that that person didn't have a lot of, of just a tiny role, and so I focused more on people who had bigger roles and, and had more influence, so right. I apologize that, that I... No, 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 no. What, what brought you to writing about food and drink, Sherry? You know, I, I have, since I was little, um, I've always found my three passions in school were cooking, you know, like a home economics class, and I loved English and history. And... You know, I didn't go to school for that. Um, I wanted to be a restaurant owner and have a chef and own my own restaurant. And I took some restaurant management classes and that kind of thing and didn't end up going to chef school because I didn't want to spend 100 hours in the kitchen working nights, weekends, and holidays. Yep. <laughs> so, you know, food and history has always kind of been you know, near and dear to my heart. And I've always been curious about it. And I've loved collecting cookbooks over the years. And then the first time I ever went to Tombstone, I just felt a connection somehow, mm. whether I lived there in another lifetime or I just felt something special about it. And when I came home from that first trip back in 1996, I think it was, I said, you know, I wonder what they ate back in Tombstone. And sort of that sort of put me on the trail of that. And then, you know, today I have, you know, multiple books about food and beverage on the frontier. Um, and I just, I find it fascinating that I like to look at people who, who are normal, everyday, average people that don't make the history books, you know, sure. because they didn't do anything famous other than, like us, you know, we just lived our lives. We, yeah, we did right. things day to day, but you can tell so much from a person or a region about what they ate and what they drank, and it's very cultural for me, and I love writing about it and sharing it because I feel like people can experience history by tasting it. Interesting. You're kind of the James Beard of the old West. There you go. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Okay, so let's compare some some uh, some areas. Uh, let, let's take Dodge City because everybody's familiar with Dodge City, uh, mm -hmm. and so uh, we know there probably was a Delmonico's there. What else? What else might have been there uh, versus what is in Abilene or what was in Denver? Well, you know, you have the big influence that you see between different locations is the railroad. If you are a rail city, then you have unlimited ingredients coming into you from all over the country and also can be imported from Europe and from Asia. Remember, you know, Asia, China was very exotic at the time, and so people often had Chinese pottery. Um, even though they looked down on the Chinese, the people themselves, they thought that the items from the Orient were very exotic. So it really depends on where you are as far as food and mm -hmm. what you had available to you and the dining experience. Of course, you know, if you're in Dodge City or Abilene, you're talking beef, you know, out the wazoo Lots, because yeah. <laughs> you're cattle towns. Yeah. Um, 
And you would have had, but again, you're still talking about the Victorian era and Dodge City and Abilene and Denver, just like Tombstone, all want to be trendy and keep up with the Joneses, if you will. So a lot of the menus are very similar. You'll see slight variations. You know, Tombstone being closer to California and Mexico, you see more fresh seafood, more fresh produce because it was perishable. It's not like today where... You can have fresh produce year-round or fresh fruit year-round. It was all very seasonal at the time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it really did, the railroad really made a huge difference on what you were able to offer at a local restaurant and what your experience was. Interesting. we got to do our first commercial break. We're talking with Western Riders of America, Sherry Monahan. We're talking about the Tombstone Cookbook and just basically food in the Old West. And uh, what did everybody eat and drink? And, and drink rum. Grub. Rum. Rum and whiskey. Grub. G-R-U-B. Grub. Oh, grub. We'll be back. There's only <laughs> the land of cattle, copper, and cowboys. It's also the true west where a large number of westerns were built. For your next vacation, come out to where Wyatt Earp made a name for himself as a highly respected sheriff. Stay where Jimmy Stewart filmed Winchester 73. That would be the White Stallion Ranch. Situated in the mountains just northwest of Tucson, the White Stallion Ranch is an award-winning dude ranch with 43 guest rooms and the Hacienda. That's a five-bedroom, three-bathroom home perfect for larger families, family reunions, and girlfriend getaways. Every guest room has a private patio with views of the cactus gardens, mountains, or corrals. Generous floor plans offer sunny, comfortable rooms, but you won't want to stay in your room. Outdoor activities are plentiful at the White Stallion Ranch. Horseback riding, hiking, shooting, archery, rock climbing, e-biking, and a weekly ranch rodeo are among the numerous activities that you'll enjoy on your ranch vacation. Go Western for your next getaway. The White Stallion Ranch. Book your vacation now online at whitestallionranch.com or call 520-297-0252. Are you looking for a smart way to invest your hard-earned dollars? Look no further than Wilkinson Wealth Management. This is an investment firm that works for you based on your expectations, not what the stock market says. This is a firm that wants you as a client, not just as a customer. This is a firm that lets you design a portfolio for when you need it. It's a new name, but the same great service you've come to expect. I, Miss Wilkinson, is now Wilkinson Wealth Management. 7411 East Tank Verde in Tucson, 520-777-1911. America, let me tell you about Sergeant Greg Anderson. Served two tours in Afghanistan, Bronze Star and Purple Heart recipient, and unemployed. The unemployment rate among transitioning service members is unacceptably high, much higher than the general population. Veterans are a proven commodity. They're mature, reliable, and hardworking. They deserve a chance to get back to work after serving their country. Do you really want to honor a veteran? Hire one. Go to legion.org slash honor veterans to find out how you can help. Well, I'm Hank Fergus, Marshal. So? You never heard of me? Nope. Well, I've been in California for quite a spell. Well, this is Dodge, Fergus. And gunmen with big reputations come and go a lot here. Mostly they go. This is the Voices of the West. We're 
back on Abel Francie's Voices of the West. Harry Alexander, Bunker DeFrance, and Todd Roberts, although he's not with us right now, but uh, doing a little uh, ragtime Cowboy Joe there, man. Recognize that? Uh, well, you know, we got crooks out here in the West. They come from big, fancy places. But here in Dodge City, cooks come and go. <laughs> cooks come and go. We're talking food on this edition of Abel Franzi's Voices of the West. And our guest is uh, Sherry Monahan, author, Western Writers of America author. And her one of her, late, one of her latest of many books is uh, the Tombstone Cookbook. And uh, we're, we're, we're published in February pub- of this year. That's right. And so uh, by two dot, and we're... We're talking. Uh, we're talking about food, doggone it, because we're hungry. <laughs> well, you know, Sherry, there's one thing that it's, it's really uh, made the book even extra special, interesting to me, was because you know when you're reading the history or the fiction of the West, it's always the saloons and the bars and the cattle drives and the marshals and the townsmen, and they never talk about the grocery store. Yep. Butcher shop, the ice cream parlor, the restaurants, the hotels, and it was so it was so refreshing because you, you, we forget that's all part of the part of the tapestry. That is very true. I mean, when you and that's I think what's fascinated me about writing about places on the frontier and, and Tombstone is that. Again, as we were talking about earlier, it, it gives you a peek into life. And when you see a Western, um, you rarely see anybody having a meal um, or going grocery shopping or going to the butcher store. And those are all part of daily life. You see maybe a cowboy getting a shave and a bath. Um, a few a few Hollywood movies have done, you know, food. I think the TV show Bonanza, mm-hmm. you know, they've had quite Hop a few sing. meals. Obscene. Yeah. Obscene, exactly. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, you do see a few here and there, but for the most part, I guess, you know, eating isn't exciting and food, um, you know, in a movie scene, you know, or a television show about the Old West or even people talking about it isn't, isn't exciting and sexy, although I think food is. So, I mean, you know, I'm, a, I'm a quirky. Um, but, you know, that, it, again, it tells the true story of, of how people lived and what they were like. You think they could ever make a remake, a Western remake of a Grand Buffet? let's talk about some of the goodies that are contained within the tombstone cookbook um this is a book uh that you have uh, where you have compiled more than 120 recipes uh inspired by the historic eateries in tombstone and adopted for our uh for the for today and uh, as well as uh, some of the old timers uh, from there. So let's talk about some of those recipes. Okay. Um, you know, when I was looking to, to supply the recipes so people could, you know, recreate history in Tombstone, there were a lot of sources that were available. Um, I found uh, when I was in Tombstone uh, several years ago, I bought a cookbook there from an antique store from the 18, I think it was 1886. So I used that. Um, there are old newspapers that are available online. I scoured those for recipes of the period, uh, tried to use them if they were from Tombstone or in Arizona, uh, because, of course, they would have been popular at the time. Um, Otto Geisenhofer um, it was Tombstone's first baker, and I was so blessed to have been able to be in touch with his daughter, 
uh, back in the late 90s when I was researching the first um, uh, Tombstone cookbook, uh, he had her very late in life, and she was very old when I met her, and she was so sweet and so kind. Uh, she shared um, Otto's um, cookies, Christmas cookie recipes with me, so there are some truly authentic Tombstone recipes in there for those cookies. Um, and then Robin Andrews' um, ancestor uh, had the Levan house, so she had a few recipes. She had prepared a little a little signature cookbook for me from her family's recipes. So some of those are in there. So there is a, a tombstone connection throughout. Uh, not as much as I would have preferred, uh, but you know people didn't write down recipes too much back then. Only bakers. Mm-hmm. Um, myself today, you know, I play chopped in my own kitchen. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like, oh, what do I have here? What do I have there? Yep, I'm going to yep. make this recipe. Yep. Um, and even though there were some traditional dishes that required recipes. People pretty much knew them by heart. Yeah, um, and me, yeah. yeah. Exactly. I mean, you knew how to make chicken fricassee. Um, it wasn't a big deal. It was just you did it by, you know, chicken pot pie. You knew how to make it. So, you know, finding specific recipes was a challenge. But um, I think I think you'll find a really good mix of, of different types of recipes, but all 19th century, very well, typical of what they would have eaten back in Tombstone. Lots well, of beef. Here's, here's the cookbook that you bought. It's... Breakfast, Luncheon, and Tea by Marion Harlan. Marion Harlan, yep. Sounds great. And I, I, that was, that, yeah, I, I, I focus in on little bitty things that I, probably I'm the only one in the world that does it. <laughs> but I'm looking at them saying breakfast, luncheon, and tea? Gee, that's interesting. Four o'clock tea. <laughs> yeah, you know, you, we, we forget, you know, this is a Victorian era. Right. And mm-hmm. people still had Victorian moors. And this was, this, you know, Tombstone wasn't a cow town. It was... It was a mining town, but it was also a trying, like, like Sherry says, trying to be very cosmopolitan. I think they were very cosmopolitan, probably a hell of a lot more cosmopolitan than Tucson was. Especially today, even. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that goes without saying. Well, if, if you think about the sheer amount of money that was pouring in and out of Tombstone with the silver. I mean, there were millions of dollars in in those times, okay, in that period. So probably, you know, up close to billions of dollars in today's, if you transfer the dollar amount. And so, you know, people were having their clothes imported from from London and from France. Uh, They were buying expensive items and goods. I mean, Tombstone was a big happening place. It happened to be remotely located where it is, of course, but they had everything. I mean, they had pianos, they had a, um, a flower shop, uh, they had billiard parlors, they had wine parlors, they had fancy hotels. And so, yeah, when you think about everything that was in Tombstone, it rivaled some of the bigger cities out west, just in sheer volume of the Victorian era. And I always tell people that. People seem to think that the Victorian era and the Western expansion are two separate entities. And while they are historically and how it happened, they happened at the same time, roughly 1860 to 1900. So when you blend those two together, you have what I like to call the Victorian West. We talk about that all the time. Yeah, I mean, we we know that so many Victorian uh, mores, social mores were... Adopted mm-hmm. and, or continued out in the old west. You, well, know, you, know, so. you look at the cowboys' manners. Which, yeah, exactly. Which are very, exactly. Which are very, very unexpected. Are very, very Victorian. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I mean, when you would have a shoot up in the in one of the saloons in Tombstone, the cowboys or the the people who shot it up would go back the next day, apologize, and pay for all the damages. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I mean, so yeah. Yeah, there's there's a, a thing too which I was thinking about, which is. You know, 
you've got folks, the folks living there, you know, they're not townsmen like you see in the movies. They're Mm -hmm. doctors, lawyers, uh, physicians. You know, you've got somebody's running an ice cream parlor. You've got a grocery stores. You've got chop shops. You've got all these different crafts and people. You've got got farriers. You've got people taking care of freighting. I mean, it's just yeah. it's a whole world of occupations, unlike the movies where everybody's just a townsman. <laughs> right. You've 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 got the school teacher. You've got the guy yeah. who's mucking out the hay stalls at the OK Corral. I mean, <laughs> they're, they're uncredited extras. <laughs> yes. And you know the funny they thing they are they are the people who made the town survive. Never. And you know that's one of the, I think one of the great ironies is everybody thinks of Tombstone. They think of the Earps and the Clantons. And they're an aberration when you really get right down to it, because Tombstone was made up of of, of business people, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, not just mining, but business people. And the cowboys, they came to Tombstone to party, but they weren't part of the Tombstone thing. And the herbs were an aberration; they were just there at the wrong time, at the right place. Yep. Is there yep. one recipe in your uh, Tombstone cookbook that stands out over uh, the rest of them, and, or I mean, one that is maybe more popular? Uh, be, I, oh, the, the cover has wow. the cover has what looks like a, a, a roast. Uh, it's like a pot roast. Yeah, yeah. pot roast meal. So uh, mm-hmm. I would imagine that pot roast was probably pretty pretty common. Um, you know, honestly, it's it's not as common as you would think. Um, it's not the most popular dish that you see. You see a lot of salmon. Salmon was on almost, I mean, a, a ton of menus, and it would come from the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Chicken dishes, chicken fricassee, um, chicken saute a la marengo, roast chicken with mushroom sauce. Uh, I mean, you you know, chicken pot pie, chicken croquettes, you know, how to use leftover meat. Um <laughs> And so, in lamb, you know, was very popular. Uh, venison, you know, rabbit, things that would have been um, out. You know, of course, we talked about oysters. I mean, there, there's not any one thing that stands out for me other than um, what I find funny is something called green apple dumplings. Oh, yeah. And it wasn't that people were eating green green fruit, unripened fruit. Back in the day, because, again, as I alluded to earlier, is that everything was seasonal. Uh, you didn't eat out of season at the time mm-hmm. because it just wasn't available. So grain meant fresh. Otherwise, it was dried. And there were tons of dried apple pies. And there's even a joke, uh, a poem that someone wrote about the dreadful dried apple pie <laughs> attracts the flies. Or it, it, It's a funny poem, but uh, appeared in one of the Tombstone newspapers. So whenever anything was like there was green peach dumplings or, or a green peach fried pie or something, that it meant fresh. And so in the book is the green apple dumplings which I love because it's an apple wrapped in pie dough pastry and the center is cored out with like brown sugar and butter and cinnamon and then you have this sauce that gets on the plate underneath it and oh it's just so good now I want one damn it <laughs> it, <laughs> well, sounds, it sounds very much like a, a, a traditional Czech or Czechoslovakian dish that my mother used to make and my grandmother used to make it's a dumpling but it mm-hmm. uh, we we she would make uh, make it with apricots or plums or peaches, mm-hmm. and, and mm. so yeah, uh, I mean, my mouth is watering now. <laughs> well, you know, my, uh, uh, my mom's family, which were all Texans, I mean, the fruit cobblers and yeah. dumplings yeah. were real yep. common, and 
you know, and, and also, you know, you have the Granny Smiths, which were green apples. Yep. That's just the color. Mm-hmm. It had nothing to do with the freshness. It had right. to do with the color. Yeah. But I have another question for you here. This is one of those head scratchers that I like. I, 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 I see these little things in the, in the stuff, and it, it hits me like a brick, and then I have to ask about it, and then everybody wants to throw a brick at me. Uh, but, uh, uh, you mentioned, and this was in the earlier book, you mentioned uh, Ike Clanton's grocery order for his restaurant. Do you by any mm-hmm. chance remember anything about that, or is that another one of those I should have kept my mouth shut? <laughs> Oh, no, um, it's actually really interesting because he made up quite a list uh, when he was um, going shopping, and, and uh, he didn't actually go to, he went to Tucson, or he ordered it from Tucson, and he had, it's really funny, I often say this about um, recipe cookbooks, and it's sort of similar to what his grocery order was, <laughs> is that he had brooms and mops in addition to his food and old old recipe books if you've ever seen any you get to see um that not only did they have recipe books but they also had like recipes for furniture polish yeah right yeah oh yeah hair oil yeah there's a there's a program on uh, one of the streaming services tubi uh, and it's called victorian farm and it's where these three people go back in time and, and live on a Victorian farm, uh, and they're all archaeologists, anthropologists, and, and uh, the, the woman, she she's tasked with coming up with all of these old-time recipes, as well as coming up with, like, the furniture polish, uh, or your, your the the concoction to cure your cold, you know, so... Chest yeah, right, uh, various things like that, so yeah, interesting. Well, let's, you know, there's another thing, yeah, which, uh, again, you only see it in Bonanza, but the Chinese chop shops, which was also among some of Doomstone's first eateries. I'm sorry, you, say that again? The Chinese chop shops, you know, they, uh-huh. were, they were among some of... Uh, of uh, Tombstone's first eateries, which is true almost anywhere the railroad went, or, or, and oh yeah, yeah, there was, a, Boone, there was a yeah, go ahead, I'm sorry, yeah, there was a there was a Chinese restaurant um, that came on uh, one of the first restaurants that was in the old location when Ike Clanton had his restaurant. And the really interesting thing was is that you know there was this this Chinatown, um, or actually if you look at the old uh, tombstone maps, it was called Hop Town, and it was basically you had one whole section just for that that specific um, culture of people. They were not mm-hmm. you know thought of to live with the rest of the people, um, which you know is unfortunate, Evens. but it was you know it's history. Yeah. Um, and so you know they people would would sort of hop off there because, you know, they wanted to go to the opium parlors. Uh, but most people would not eat at those type of, those type of restaurants. Mm. And so uh, it would be very unusual to have a Chinese restaurant, which that went away very quickly. Oh. And then when you had the anti-Chinese movement that came along in 1882, almost all of the Chinese people who were working as staff at restaurants or hotels or anywhere were being fired because right. everybody was against the Chinese. Right. And so it it isn't until... The 1900s, late 1800s, maybe 1900s, where you really start to see ethnic restaurants becoming popular, where people aren't afraid to go to a Mexican restaurant or a Chinese restaurant, and that's when you really start to see that change. But yes, yeah, so the Chinese were some of the earliest people to have restaurants. It's just 
most of the people that went there were only Chinese because it just was looked down upon. If you were, you know, an Anglo, you would not go to one of those places. I can remember that in the 50s. It was like you went to the Italian or the Mexican Mm -hmm. restaurants Mm -hmm. because you could get a huge meal for a half or a quarter of what you'd get in in an Anglo restaurant. And good food. Uh, we got to do, speaking of food, we got to do another break. Oh, more food. <laughs> Eat the buffet. <laughs> Here on Amo Francie's Voices of the West, we'll be back with much more right after these messages. Can you even imagine switching back to pen and paper to run your business? Every year we become more and more dependent upon our technology. If your network is not set up properly, you're just one click or one email away from losing data critical to your operation. Arizona Computer Guru offers a host of services to prevent and protect you from disaster. From online backup services to email filtering to fully managed network services, Arizona Computer Guru is here to keep your network secure, your data safe, and your budget in the black. To schedule your free consultation, call 304-8300. The Tucson Trap and Ski Club dates from 1948 and is now at 7800 West Old Ajo Highway. The club owns 80 acres and leases 300 more from Pima County that supports 50 trap fields, 15 skeet fields, two five-stand fields, two sporting plays courses with 12 stations each, a 9,000-square-foot clubhouse, 200 full-service RV hookups for members, and free Wi-Fi. This expansive facility gives enough room to host major national and international events annually, bringing thousands of people to the community. Check it out at Tucson Trap and Ski. You've got some cattle you want rustled, but don't have enough henchmen of your own to do the job. Little lady up the road apiece won't strike a deal with you about water rights. You out there! Come one step nearer and old Bess here will spit right in your eye. So you need to strike your own deal, but you need the right henchmen to do the job. The stage is hauling a Wells Fargo box loaded with gold. You've got the perfect spot to liberate that gold, but blank henchmen to pull off the job. What to do? You better start packing a handgun. Call Red a Hench. We're a bad guy rental agency. We provide you with enough scrappy henchmen to tackle any job with specific directions. Just listen to what Red a Hench users have to say. Well, you know, when I joined Red a Hench, I was trained by Bud Osborne, Charlie King, and some of the best head henches there ever was. And I'm going to guarantee you that you cannot hench without the proper henches around you. And that's just a gentle hench. When you need sheer numbers of henchmen, call us. We specialize in stage holdups, water right disputes, squatter troubles, cattle rustling, and much more. Our rent henchmen may not be able to think their way out of a paper bag, but they sure can follow directions, and they won't sing to the law about you if they get caught. See our ad in the Saturday Evening Post or Harper's Weekly. Hey, not only that, when you're in the Long Branch and you want to go next door to Doc's to get that bullet out of your shoulder, get a rent to sit there on your place and keep your whiskey warm while you're gone. Red Hench, when you need bad guys to do bad guy stuff so you can keep your hands clean. You let me do the work. Yosemite Sam! It's Yosemite Sam! Yosemite Sam! Yosemite Yeah, Yosemite Sam! The roughest, toughest, he-man stuff as Tom Bray has ever crossed the Rio Grande. And I ain't no man be pandy. This is the Voices of the West. That's our hero, Yosemite Sam. And there ain't no namby-pamby cooks on this show. <laughs> Welcome back to another edition of Amel Francie's Voices of the West. Uh, Harry Alexander, Bunker de France. Todd Roberts not with us today. Our guest is uh, Sherry Monahan, and uh, we're talking food and drink. Uh, she's the author of a number of food and drink books. Uh, the one we're talking about is the Tombstone Cookbook. Sherry. 
Now, if I was a henchman coming into Tombstone back in those days, what restaurants would you recommend for me to, to, to visit? Well, wow, you you have your choice, uh, depending on when you're there, of course. Um, we're just going to say any random date. Uh, you could go to the Can Can. You could go to the Cosmopolitan Dining Room. You could go to Carlton's Coffee and Oyster House. You could go to the Arcade. You could go to the Bon Ton. You go to the Boston House, the Grand Hotel Dining Room, the International House Restaurant. Um, let's see, the New Orleans Restaurant. You could go to Modini's Italian Restaurant if you were there in 1882, the Occidental Chop House, uh, the Pacific Chop House, the Russ House, um, or the Star Restaurant, just to name a few. You know, now I know why Henchman had a boss, because I would need a boss to tell me how to figure that out. <laughs> what was the average cost for a meal at one of these eateries? Um, you know, depending on the time period, um, anywhere from 25 cents to 50 cents. And keep in mind that a miner at that time period made about $3 a day. Big money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and for that meal, you're going to get, uh, obviously... Soup to nuts. The whole ball of wax. The whole thing. And that's where the term came from. If you look at any of these old menus, uh, you will see that, um, and I'm trying to flip through one in my book here so that I could tell you, but literally your, your meal would start with the soup entree, and then uh, you would proceed through several different courses of your, your choice that you could choose from. Um, you know, and, and let's just see here, there's the, the bill of fare from the Eureka um, restaurant. You could have had your soup. There were choices of chicken, rice, uh, tomato, or mulligatawny, and then you have a fish course, uh, some type of fresh fish. Roast could have been beef, mutton, leg of lamb, um, chicken breast. Um, you could have had duck. Entrees were like uh, chicken escalloped. Um, just trying to read these here <laughs> without my glasses. Uh, sorry, forgive sorry. me. Vegetables, you know, you had potatoes and different types of vegetables. And then, of course, you have peach or apple pie. Um, and then, of course, you could finish your, your course with some fruits, cheeses, or nuts. And that's how you got the term soup to nuts. That's literally what the bills of fare, we call menus today, they were called bills of fare. That's what they look like. Oh, interesting. It's like eating like Henry VIII. I reckon. Oh, boy. Well, yeah, I reckon. Now, I, 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 wanted to, to answer, yeah. I wanted to answer your question. You asked me earlier, and I, I sidebarred. Um, you asked me some of the items that Ike Clanton ordered to open up his restaurant. Oh, yes. And I talked about mops and brooms, and I got sidetracked. <laughs> So just to name a couple items were dried apples and peaches, which we talked about, uh, lard, coffee, canned tomatoes, raisins, salt, pepper, syrup, flour, um, cream of tartar, sugar and cornmeal, of course, some dishes and glasses and pots and pans that he would have needed to to set up. So I wanted to answer your question, not think I forgot you. Oh, that's awesome. So in terms of uh, of adjusting the cookbook, the Tombstone cookbook for today's home chef... Mm -hmm. Uh, how have you how have you adjusted that? I mean, you, you, uh, yeah, a lot of people an iron stove and an electric oven. Yeah, right. Obviously, but um, uh, you know you can still buy lard, and I know lots of people who like to cook with lard. Uh, who we the hell beans? If no, you got to have lard. Who the hell cares what the government or the the medical people say about uh, how good lard might or might not be for you? It's Part of the cooking process. So, what, it, well, what adjustments my do you reason, have made? The way the way I like to cook and the way I feel about food and ingredients is if I can't pronounce it, 
then it doesn't go in my body. There you go. Um, I like that. And the other thing is, is that lard is from the animal versus shortening, which God only knows what it is (laughs) anymore. Uh, And so, you know, if you you read about all these horrible trans fats and and, um, omega-3s versus omega-6s, you know, there's so many things that are, are, the trans fats are bad for you. So, you know, when you think about lard, it's really not as bad as it sounds. But the, the reason that I say recipes were adapted uh, is because not necessarily for the ingredients, but for the actual preparation themselves. Because the recipes back in the day would have a list of the ingredients. Um, Some of them would say butter the size of an egg. Uh-huh. A knife point of baking soda. Uh-huh. Bake in a hot oven. Bake in a moderate oven. Uh, use a gridiron. What the hell's a gridiron? Right. You know. Uh-huh. Yep. So, you know, I have to tell you that a gridiron is a broiler. Uh-huh. Um, and so, it's more of the preparation versus the ingredients when I say adapted. And it's just so that you can understand exactly the steps that you need to take to prepare this actual meal. That's well, you know, I'm thinking too. You know, if you go back and you look at the actuaries of that period of farmers and the and the ranchers and the mm-hmm. old the old people you know when eighty five percent of the population worked outdoors they didn't yep. have the heart diseases and they ate like this and yeah you know and it's like baking ain't baking without lard I you know yeah. I, I don't think so but uh, that's just my opinion yeah. It's just, it's your it's eating off the land and eating unadulterated food for the most part and you know but then again you know you also start to see supply and demand happen towards yeah. the later part of the 1800s and 1900s and then you start to see more adulterated products come in and then finally in um, the early 1900s you had the um, the food uh, act come in and start to regulate some of those ingredients because right. some people were putting some really horrible things yep. in That's you know like talcum powder in in um, in cornstarch or yeah. in baking powder or baking soda so you know you do run into that problem but it was basically clean eating from from healthy land and from healthy animals well let me ask you this how did the big two fires that they had down there first one devastated one half of the town and then a year or so later the other devastated the other half that had to have uh, pretty much a profound effect because i'm figuring that probably especially one most of the residents generally uh, uh, are in one section of town so how did they how did they cope with that? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, the majority of businesses were on Allen Street, which was the main thoroughfare. Of course, you have, you know, the other side, you've got Fremont, um, and then on the other side, you've got Tufnut, where all the mines were. But Allen was like the main commerce street, although even though, you know, you had like between uh, 4th and uh, 3rd, 4th, 5th, and 6th Street, where the parallel streets running opposite that, you know, also had tons of businesses. A large portion of them were on Allen. And so the first fire devastated one section of Allen. Um, But after the first fire in in June of 1881, you see it's still early in Tombstone's history. And people, um, the mines haven't even come close to being, you know, tapped out yet. People want to come back. They are resilient. Half of them have insurance. Half of them don't. They rebuild. They relocate to other locations. There aren't many people in 1881 affected by the fire that still aren't around by 1882. Mm. When you get to the May of 1882 fire that actually started in the back of the Maison Dorée in the Grand Hotel in a trash area, that devastates an entirely different section of, of Allen Street. And it affects the Grand Hotel, the Cosmopolitan Hotel, Brown's Hotel, the three major hotels that had the biggest restaurants, they're all gone and they never come back. 
after that fire. It's almost like after the second fire, Tombstone was like, okay, this is a second fire. You know, we, we got through the first one. This second one was really devastating, really tough. And a lot of people just said, you know what, we're done. We're going to move on. So you do see a big change after that second fire of businesses. A lot of people still stay, and they all hang around until, you know, the first big giant fire burns in the mines in 1885 and floods them all. And then people start to realize, okay, this is not going to happen. And uh-huh. you slowly start to see people move away. And by 1888, 89, almost everybody's gone. Well, that and the silver crash uh, sort of contributed to Well, the to price of too. silver definitely did not help. Yeah, yeah Is there a favorite recipe that you have uh, from the Tombstone Cookbook, Sherry? Uh, you know, I the, the 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 green apple dumpling one is is definitely one of my favorites. Um, you know, there's so many good ones in here. It's hard to choose. You know, I do I do love dessert. Uh, the strawberry shortcake recipe in here. You know, in North Carolina where I am, it's it's strawberry season. Mm-hmm. It's getting to be close. Um, so you know, that's one of my favorites. And of course, all of the German Christmas cookies from you know Otto's recipe because they're so authentic uh, are sort of favorites. And of course, lemon meringue pie. I mean, you know, well, you, you know, had me at lemon meringue. You know, <laughs> you know, they they say life is short. Eat dessert first. So yeah. we got to do our Always. final commercial break here on Emil Franzi's <laughs> Voices of the West. We're talking with Sherry Monahan. The book is Tombstone Cookbook. We'll be back with much more after this. Arizona, the land of cattle, copper, and cowboys. It's also the true west where a large number of westerns were filmed. For your next vacation, come out to where Wyatt Earp made a name for himself as a highly respected sheriff. Stay where Jimmy Stewart filmed Winchester 73. That would be the White Stallion Ranch. Situated in the mountains just northwest of Tucson, the White Stallion Ranch is an award-winning dude ranch with 43 guest rooms and the Hacienda. That's a five-bedroom, three-bathroom home perfect for larger families, family reunions, and girlfriend getaways. Every guest room has a private patio with views of the cactus gardens, mountains, or corrals. Generous floor plans offer sunny, comfortable rooms, but you won't want to stay in your room. Outdoor activities are plentiful at the White Stallion Ranch. Horseback riding, hiking, shooting, archery, rock climbing, e-biking, and a weekly ranch rodeo are among the numerous activities that you'll enjoy on your ranch vacation. Go Western for your next getaway. The White Stallion Ranch. Book your vacation now online at whitestallionranch.com or call 520-297-0252. Are you looking for a smart way to invest your hard-earned dollars? Look no further than Wilkinson Wealth Management. This is an investment firm that works for you based on your expectations, not what the stock market says. This is a firm that wants you as a client, not just as a customer. This is a firm that lets you design a portfolio for when you need it. It's a new name, but the same great service you've come to expect. I, Miss Wilkinson, is now Wilkinson Wealth Management. 7411 East Tanker Verde in Tucson, 520-777-1911. Hello, I'm Mr. Red. No doubt you've heard about rescue groups for dogs and cats, but did you know there's a rescue group for horses? That's right, it's called Horse It Around Rescue. Founders Steve Boyce and Teresa Worrell are helping out all those equine victims of neglect and cruelty by giving them a place to restore their health and wellness. 
and Horse It Around provides a nurturing and natural environment where horses can be horses, so they can be adopted out into forever homes. More than 120 horses, mules, and donkeys have been adopted out, but like everything else, it costs money to run the project. Horse It Around is a 501c3 nonprofit located in southeast Arizona. Your tax-deductible donations to Horse It Around will go a long way so those horses can be horses. Check out the website, horseitaroundrescue.org. Make a difference in a horse's life. That's horseitaroundrescue.org. Hi, this is Craig Morgan with a special message for all those who have served in the U.S. Army. The National Museum of the United States Army, to be built at Fort Belvoir, Virginia, will include the Soldiers' Registry, an electronic record of Americans who have worn the Army uniform, recognizing their service. I've already added my story to the registry. I hope you'll add yours. To learn more and to make your story a permanent part of the National Army Museum, visit armyhistory.org. Too bad we got to start things when there's a wedding going on down there at NABS. You think so? Well, think again. With everybody out of the way, we can move in at that cabin up on the plateau. And by morning, we're all set to ride down on NAB. Boss, I never thought of that. Nobody expected you to. Come on. This is the Voices of the West. To another edition of Abel Franzi's Voices of the West. Harry Alexander and Bucket of France with you. Todd Roberts is someplace. We He's don't know where. Around <laughs> Who knows? Uh, our guest is Sherry Monahan, and uh, the book is to- The Tombstone Cookbook. We're talking about food and drink and here uh, and Tombstone here on the program. Time for shameless self promotion, Sherry. Yes. Uh, what, you got a new book coming out soon. Yours. Uh, the new book, uh, it'll probably be out in a year from now. I wish I could say sooner. Um, okay. But the the new book uh, I'm working on is called Historic Foods of America, Signature Dishes from Hotels and Restaurants Across the Country. Uh, it's going to be a fun book. Uh, it's about the origins of some of the restaurants. We were talking about Delmonico's. You know, Delmonico's created Baked Alaska, yeah. uh, Chicken a la King, the Delmonico Potatoes, Delmonico Steak, um, and so those are like the genealogy of those foods and where they came from. And then some signature place re- dishes that have been around, like the St. Elmo's Steakhouse in Indiana that has uh, a shrimp cocktail. Uh, and then, of course, you have different meals that came from California, like the Green Goddess Salad Dressing from the Palace Hotel in San Francisco. Uh, lots of fun, fun stories and recipes, all from the locations, beautiful photography, some fun historic photos in there as well. So that's what's coming up next. And oh, what- cool. What restaurant uh, started the doggy bag? <laughs> you know, that's a damn good question, and i got to look that up now. Oh, that could be a book here. Ah, yeah. ah, doggy the, bags of America. Doggy bags. Uh, Sherry has other books out besides the Tombstone Cookbook. Uh, another one here, Shaken in 2020 but not stirred. Uh, <laughs> cocktails. The Golden Elixir of the West, talking about whiskey uh, and the shaping of America. We're getting into your territory. Yeah, uh, whiskey. Now. Actually, uh, rum was much more prevalent than oh. whiskey, especially in the East Coast. Well, uh, well, that's that's true in the in the 1700s, uh, and then once the colonists rose up against the British because of the the cost of sugar and the taxes sure. on sugar. Yep. 
rum went by the wayside, and whiskey became the number one drink behind beer. And uh, apple cider. Uh, in hard cider. Well, yeah, and hard cider. But, yeah, I know mm-hmm. that there were a number of uh, uh, rum, rum manufacturers uh, that did quite well in the Old West. Uh, Tinsel, Tumbleweeds, and Star-Spangled Celebrations is another one of her books. Oh. Uh, the Cowboys, a cookbook. Uh, Frontier Fair, one moment, Frontier Fair, and then uh, California Vines, Wines, and Pioneers, and then she has some Western History books out as well, one Mrs. Earp, another one the California Madams, uh, the Wicked West... And go ahead. Barbara. I'm just going to say, you know, we you do a podcast, the Marshall and That's the right. Madam. Yeah. Uh, what? Why don't you promote your podcast? Exactly. Well, I I've done uh, Marshall Trimble, who's the Arizona State historian, yes. and myself. We did 38 podcasts in the Marshall and the Madam series, uh, and we aren't doing any more right now. We've put that on hold uh, oh, to pursue no. other projects. Well, that's okay. No, we had we had a blast doing it, and like I said, we did 38 episodes are in the can, uh, so they're out there for your listening pleasure. Um, and if they do happen to disappear, I'm going to be posting them on my website okay. uh, within the next month or so. I listened to uh, one, and it was quite quite yeah. good, very yeah. good. Yeah, Marshall and I have a really had a really good time doing it. Um, but again, like I said, we just we needed to take a break and pursue some other projects like this, you know, Historic Foods of America book that's coming out hopefully soon. Yeah. Uh, I hope to hear some good news from my publisher on Tuesday. So fingers crossed, everybody. Yeah, um, and I know Marshall's got some things going on as well. But thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, well, you know, we got to we got to keep the podcast world alive because that's exactly you know, there's room for all of us. Yes, there is. <laughs> there is, and there's room for more. Exactly. Well, you know, I want to I want to just run through something real quick here because we we talked about the, all the different food, but what we haven't really mentioned is the types: French, English, German, Italian, Irish, Creole, New England. Uh, just you know the whole the whole shooting match. The whole shooting match. Yeah, the whole barn full of different cultures. And each one, you know, and, each one is unique, especially this. And, and they are, and and because you had so many people uh, coming from all over the, our country and coming over from Europe and from other countries, you know, you do see that influence. And it was a big deal when a restaurant brought in a new chef. Um, they would advertise, you know, this guy is from, you know, San Francisco, or this guy mm-hmm. is from uh, New Orleans, or this guy's from New York. And so it was a real big deal. Uh, and you do see the influence of food depending on who the owner of the business is and who right. the chef is. Um, again, though, cultural food wasn't really a big deal. You did have an Italian restaurant uh, pretty frequently in Tombstone, which is unusual for most other towns, uh, but you had, like I said, you had Modini's, um, and then, of course, you had a, um, there was a French restaurant uh, that later came along. Even though everything was classic French cuisine, it specialized in French food because the owners and the chef were both French. Uh, you would see some, like, German pancakes. Uh, even Nellie Cashman, who was Irish, served, mm-hmm. you know, German pancakes. Uh, and every once in a while, when you look at a menu, you would see an influence from a particular country. And, of course, the bakers and the brewers were all from Switzerland or Germany. You know, that's what they did well. And the sausage makers are from Germany. Right. Uh, so you do see that cultural influence in food throughout Tombstone. Is there any particular Western in your mind that speaks well to the issue of food or, or, or talks about food or demonstrates uh, everything there is about food and drink? In, like in chocolate for water. I, I honestly, I think that the, the one that comes to mind is Bonanza. 
Um, sure. They they were often at the dinner table, you know, more often than any any other shows okay. or movies that I can recall. Um, you know, Pale Rider with Clint Eastwood. There is that one scene where he goes into um, into town and he decides he's going to have a meal and he sits there and they have a menu outside that's written in chalk and it has different types of steaks and he's having coffee and breakfast um, and and they did a good job with that. You know, the series Deadwood. Mm-hmm. They had a, yes, quite a few yes. scenes. Yeah. In, in the restaurants. Yes, uh, so they did a good job. Well, I have a crazy question for you. Because this, Quickly, this, because we're almost out of time. Beef a la mode. Why would anybody want ice cream on their beef? <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. And a la mode simply means on the top. And that particular recipe, uh, it's, you know, an eye round roast that's, you know, cooked slowly. And then you have all of these vegetables that are cooking with it. And the vegetables were served on top of the meat. Hmm. Um, and so, yes, it's, it's a la mode, meaning on the No top. ice cream? No ice cream on oh. your beef unless you want it. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Sherry, Sherry Monahan, we're out of time. Thank you so much oh, for joining us this so afternoon. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Now, now we're doggone hungry. This was a grand. <laughs> this was a grand fan of radio talk. <laughs> SherryMonahan.com is the website. Buy her books, doggone it. Buy Next, them all. Buy them all. Next time we get together on Amal Franzi's Voices of the West, author Bob Rosebro joins us, and that'll be the next time here on Amal Franzi's Voices of the West. 78, 79, 80 rolls. <laughs> so long, everybody. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Emil Franzi's Voices of the West.